born Princess Elizabeth of York in 1926. She had spent a lifetime serving her country and its people, as well as the wider Commonwealth. She's met some of the biggest names in modern history. Winston Churchill was her first prime minister, and she's welcomed figures including John F. Kennedy and Nelson Mandela. This last week, we saw a royal milestone, didn't we? As the Queen surpassed the record of her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, to become the longest reigning monarch in British history. But one day, one day this will come to an end and she will be succeeded to the throne by Prince Charles. One day he will become the head of state, the head of the country, the defender of the faith and all the various titles that come with it. And as we see the transfer of power and of responsibility of leadership. We see that in in all aspects of life, don't we? We even saw it yesterday with Jeremy Corbyn becoming the new leader of the Labour Party. Now, I'm not going to be standing up here for the next half an hour making political statements about whether you're a royalist or whatever. But you see, we can all relate, can't we, in some way to things changing, to things moving on, to the handing over of leadership You might have experienced this at work, maybe having a new line manager or a new supervisor. And here in this little letter, tucked away near the end of the Bible, we similarly see the Apostle Paul handing over the reins to this young man called Titus. Paul is writing this letter to Titus and he's saying, in effect, no, it's your turn. You carry it on. Or as he says in verse 5, to continue the work that's been left unfinished. I've set the scene. I've only gone so far and now you have to take up the mantle. You have to step forward and by the grace of God, continue the work. That's what Paul is doing here. I don't know if you can remember back to uh, 2012 when the Olympics was on in London. And we saw a flame, didn't we? A flaming torch being taken around the country. The flame was passed on from one runner to the next. And, and that is, if you like, the picture here. Paul is handing this on. He's, Paul has been entrusted with the truth of the gospel. He's a messenger of God. And he is passing on this torch of truth to Titus. Verse 1 could be seen as the theme to the letter. Here we read, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. We see that it is by faith and knowledge of truth that leads to godliness, godly living, belief, should affect behavior. Godly living is the outcome, the outworking of the grace of God in our lives. This is the goal of our calling. Truth impacting us and changing us, leading us to godliness. And so we're going to look at this this small little book over the next three weeks 
under the title, under the heading, the goal of our calling. And you see, by God's grace, faith in the truth stimulates a desire to godliness in believers. And so God's word never trivializes sin. It never defends slackness or laziness. It never disregards the, the separated life that we have. But it always seeks the greater glory of God. And so we come to this little letter here, written by Paul to Titus, not to a church, but an individual. Paul is writing to Titus to spell out the task before him, to instruct him, to ensure that the church stands. Paul is passing on the message to Titus. So here we find Titus on this small island of Crete. We don't know the exact historical references of this letter, but it probably falls somewhere between Paul's first and second imprisonments in Rome. But what we do know is that after Paul was released from his first imprisonment, he traveled to Asia Minor, which we know as modern-day Turkey. And at some point, he ended up on Crete with Titus. And after a short time there, he left Titus behind to provide leadership to the Cretan churches, to those small believers scattered around the island. And so subsequently, Paul writes this letter and he has it delivered to Titus. So let's look firstly at what this truth is. What is this truth that has been entrusted to Paul and that is being passed on to Titus? This brings us to the first few verses, verses 1 to 4, as we look at these under the heading of truth revealed. At the outset of this letter, we read that Paul identifies himself as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul has always seen himself as a servant of God. He's always seen himself in that way. But in years past, this service, though, was designed to call out threats against the church. It was to participate in the murder of God's people. In effect, he was the enemy of Jesus Christ, totally denying the truth of Jesus as the Christ, as the Savior, the Messiah. But yet he saw himself as a servant of God. But yet now we see Paul describe himself as an apostle, a messenger, a chosen one sent of Jesus Christ. And so we see very clearly in the life of Paul, better than most, the truth of God's grace, God's free favor. One who hunted down Christians became a Christian himself and in the end became hunted himself. We see that God was, is able to pardon the worst of sinners, isn't he? Those who, from our perspective, are utterly useless, but in God's eyes are completely different. That's what we see in Paul. No matter how outrageous, no matter how horrific, the truth that originates with God shows the total depth of the grace of God. And now Paul continues further. 
Look at what Paul continues to say in verse 1. He says, To further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In these compact words, Paul does not tell of what we must do to be eligible to be God's elect or God's chosen, but rather he speaks of the faith that characterizes those who are God's. The term elect reminds us that that God has chosen us. He's chosen us out of his own mercy and not because of any merit that we deserved, not that we could attain anything in ourselves. It doesn't depend on some mysterious measure of holiness that we can somehow attain to or achieve. Paul highlights this further by stating that knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. Notice the order in which he states it. Paul doesn't state that godliness leads to a relationship with God, but rather the relationship with God establishes godliness by faith. In other words, our eternal status is determined by the love of God. The truth that originates with God has nothing to do with what we can do, but everything to do with God by his mercy. He's already done it. But this isn't all because Paul continues in verses 2 and 3 to show that truth, the truth revealed, gives us confidence. Or as verse 2 says, hope. Hope of eternal life. The revealed truth is one of assurance in God, making the way the perfect way for our relationship with him. And this way will last for eternity, for all time. But not only that, he goes on further to say that this truth that begins with God lasts for eternity, but it also began in eternity. This hope or confidence of eternal life was promised before the beginning of time. You see that at the end of verse 2? It is eternal. It will never run out. It will never be exhausted. Now, I don't know about you, but that's mind-blowing for me. Mind-blowing. So the revealed truth that begins with God is one of grace and mercy. A grace and mercy whose duration is endless forever. And so... This is the truth that has been entrusted to Paul, as we read in verse 3. It is this truth that Paul, as a servant and as an apostle, has been called to preach. Paul sees himself as a servant of God, a man committed to the sovereign purposes of God, an appointed messenger at the command of God. The truth begins with God. The truth is entrusted to Paul and the truth is revealed through Paul. And so it is this truth that Paul is passing on to Titus. And so we see, secondly, truth passed on in verses 5 through to 9. This torch of truth is being handed over. Crete is unfinished business as we we read in verse 5. Titus has a task to straighten things out and appoint elders, or as we may know it, church leaders. What needed to be 
as it says, put in order was their understanding of sound doctrine, sound beliefs. And then good leadership was needed to back this up. Bad understanding of what we believe in as a Christian leads to a bad understanding and therefore bad character. And so there is a need for good leadership, good character. And so Paul continues to to outline, if you like, the qualifications required for those who take up the task, the responsibility to pass on this truth. Leadership is vital in church. Leadership is essential. Have you ever wondered what church leaders should be like? What church leaders should look like? Have you ever considered what makes up the perfect church leader? Well, I'm going to help you out this afternoon. I found an online survey which tells you what the perfect leader is. Now, you might, if you want to, think about those who are in church leadership here, but that wouldn't be for me to say. It'd be a bit awkward, wouldn't it? So here we go. Let's see what a perfect church leader looks like. They preach exactly 15 minutes. They condemn sin, but they never upset anybody. They work from 8 a.m. until midnight. They very humbly earn £100 a week, but they're able to wear good clothes, buy good books, drive a good car, and they give £90 a week to the church. They are 39 years old with 40 years of experience. They have a burning desire to work with teenagers and they spend most of their time with senior citizens. Above all, are you ready for this? They're good looking. They know when somebody is sick and when they need visitation even without anybody ever telling them anything about it. The perfect leader smiles all the time with a a straight face because they have a sense of humor that keeps them seriously dedicated to their work. They make about 15 visits per day on various families and those in hospital, but they're always available in church when you need them. We may well look to our leaders and expect them in some way to be superhuman. And we do. We do, you know. But you know what? We will be looking for a long time. Because sometimes we don't actually think that our leaders should be superhuman, but we do look for a model of leadership which is, if you like, brought into our minds from that of society, that of what society says a leader should look like. And we bring that into the church. We only need to look, don't we, at the media and how the media undertakes all these character assassinations of those in leadership because of their definition of what leadership should be. But as we'll see over the next few moments, we shouldn't look at those leadership characteristics as the benchmark for our leaders in church. And so in these next few verses of this letter, Paul explains that the character of those in leadership is absolutely vital 
Now, for those of us who are not in church leadership, this is not the point at which we can turn off and say that this doesn't really apply to me. You see, the whole idea of church leaders is that they have a certain character so that the rest of us can see this and we can see this as an example and emulate this. We can seek to imitate this. So actually what Paul is saying here applies to all of us. So what are these character traits which we should all seek? Firstly, in verses 5 and 6, we see that of a a person with godly commitments. They are faithful to the church. They're faithful to the local church. They are appointed, as it says, in every town. Therefore, they need to be committed to the people under their care. Uh, So they're faithful to other people. But their commitment must be shown not only in the church, but as Paul says, in their family. There is a need to to set an example by being being devoted to their family. This is the priority, if you like, of living out the gospel. The Christian convictions in the home as well as in the church. So it's right that Paul uses the word here in verse 6 of being blameless. Somebody who is above reproach. And this links to verse 7 where we see that a leader must be that of godly conduct, godly commitments and godly conduct. This is, if you like, the umbrella characteristic. It controls the whole of their life. It is not a call for perfection or else no one could ever serve in the church. But it does mean that they are conscious of the way that they conduct their lives. They understand the need for a good reputation. They seek to make sure that there are no areas that would discredit uh, the gospel. They don't constantly cover things up and they don't lie about their behavior. What you see is what you get, whether it's at home, whether it's at work, whether it's in the community, even when nobody is watching. And Paul goes on to spell out what this conduct looks like. He says... Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. He understands the necessity of a balanced life. Whether it is not acting uh, as though the world revolves around them with some great big ego, not being hot-headed, and not being manipulative for their own gain either. Paul has shown what a church leader should not look like. And he now goes on to continue in verse 8 to show, if you like, on the positive, the godly character of what they should look like. And and you get the sense here in verses 7 and 8 that everything has to do with the the personal behavior and relationships that our leaders have. So Paul talks of being hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, we've not got time to go through all the detail of this, but let me just simply summarize some of these themes which Paul is talking about. Paul is looking at those who pursue the right priorities, 
They're hospitable. They're approachable. They're willing to be open to others. One who possesses the right perspectives. Who loves what is good. One who produces, if you like, the right pattern. Self-controlled, one of restraint. Not living recklessly and foolishly. And one who promotes the right passion. A holy and disciplined life. And finally, as we see the truth passed on, a church leader must be of godly convictions, Paul says in verse 9. Devoted to the truth, holding firmly to it, not being swayed, steadfast, having a strong grasp of the gospel and how it applies to everyday life, finding delight in studying the Bible, God's word, Finding delight in, in discussing it with other people. But not just being devoted to the truth, but also being diligent to teach. Encouraging and refuting. With what? With sound doctrine, sound beliefs. Beliefs, why? Because truth matters. The truth that has been received must be passed on. But it is the truth. This is vital. It's vital for all churches and it is vital for us here at Castleford as we individually and as we collectively wish to live out the goal of our calling, grace-induced godliness. And this is quite challenging, isn't it? It's really awkward to hear. Is it a really high standard to achieve? Well, yes, absolutely. 100% it is. But is it an unrealistic standard for any Christian to achieve? Well, absolutely not. Uh, Because this is just the issue. Elders are to lead uh, and, and they're to be leading so that they demonstrate these Christian characteristics so that they would be an example to us all. Not that they're perfect. So this should also be a challenge for us all, shouldn't it? We might not get things right all the time, but where do we stand, whether we're in church leadership or not? How would we measure to this standard that Paul is describing here? How would our lives stand up under this spotlight with this test? Every aspect of our lives, not just that fancy show that we can all put on on a Sunday. How do we measure up? Truth has been received and truth has been passed on. And yet, thirdly, we see that truth is opposed. It's been received, it's been passed on, and it's now opposed in verses 10 through to 16. Why is truth so important? Why does truth matter so much? Well, Paul gives us the answer in these last few verses of this first chapter. Paul has just spoken of solid, gospel-centered leaders in the local church. But there were others in the church. Those who Paul describes in really strong and stark ways here, isn't he? He describes them as rebellious, meaningless talkers and deceivers. He doesn't pull any punches, does he? Meaningless talkers. Blinky neck. 
They have another agenda. They were turning people away from the gospel of grace. They were turning people away from this godly behavior that is characterized by believers as they receive God's grace in their lives. And that grace is worked out because they were adding to the gospel. They were changing the gospel. They were insisting that Christians must become Jewish Christians. They must become Jewish and follow Jewish laws and traditions in order to be saved. They were adding to the gospel. And yet Paul has already shown in these opening verses that we looked at earlier that salvation is entirely from and of God and has got nothing to do with each one of us. Full stop. And so there is a call here for Titus to confront those who are divisive. They must be silenced, he says. They're dangerous. They're dangerous in what they think and they're dangerous in what they speak. Why? Because we're talking about eternal issues here. Eternal issues for people. And you know what? We find this adversity in the church today. We find this adversity maybe in a more subtle way than was described here in Crete. But it is still just as real. Those people who twist the gospel... Those people who make clever substitutions for dependence upon Christ alone. Legalism creeping in. All different laws that are added. Faith and obedience being watered down. Removing the cross from the gospel. Paul can see this. And he's rightly concerned. And so we read in verses 10 and 11 the following. Just have a look on the screen behind. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. Paul gives a a good description here, doesn't he? They are rebellious and divisive. They refuse to submit to the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel. Paul goes on further. The fact that they've rejected Christ alone for salvation means that there's no evidence of Christ in their lives. There's no outworking of this. And therefore what follows is that they have meaningless talk and deception. They wanted people to see them all right. But it was just outward show. It was just Jewish rituals. They're referred to as those of the circumcision group. Those wanting Jewish customs to be added to the gospel. And so they must be silenced. Their teaching was causing great damage. And this is happening up and down this country today. People preaching a gospel that is absolute no gospel at all. Watering down the problem of sin. No longer focusing on the message of the cross, but preaching on prosperity. Preaching on how you can live a successful life. Preaching on self-help. It's a load of rubbish. That's what Paul says. The gospel hasn't made a difference in their behavior, in their conversation, in their desires, in the way that they treat other people. And we need to be wary of this. 
Maybe we need to look to ourselves. Have we watered down the gospel in any way in our lives? Could we be described as mere talkers and deceivers? We talk the talk, but we don't walk the walk. Or has the grace of God induced godliness within our lives? Has the grace of God grasped us, challenged us, directed us? Is that the goal of our calling? Is it the goal of your calling? The grace to shape and mold you to be more like Christ. Truth matters. It mattered to Paul and it should matter to us. So Paul has identified those of the circumcision. They say they are Christians and yet they spread a false gospel. They rely on rituals and outward practices rather than that of Christ Jesus. So he says in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted or defiled and do not believe, nothing is pure. In other words, those who have been made pure by Christ and what he did on the cross, eating that which is classed as unclean under Jewish traditions, in no way whatsoever makes us unpure. It in no way diminishes their purity or their standing before God. Because God has made us 100% pure in his sight. Paul uses very strong language here, doesn't he? And this is because of the vital importance of truth. The truth of the gospel. So where does that leave us this afternoon? Well, let me say in conclusion that unless, unless all of our Faith is built solidly and solely on Jesus Christ and him crucified, then our faith is completely misplaced. Our faith is built on a crumbling foundation which will disappear. Paul here doesn't want anyone to rely upon anything that they can do, but only on what God has done. We almost trust the trustworthy message. We almost live by it. We almost stand by it. We almost uphold it. Truth revealed must be truth passed on, no matter how much that truth is opposed. Truth should lead to godliness in your life and mine. This is the goal of our calling. May that be the desire of all of our hearts.